I had a case where a, um, a woman went off the balcony of her cruise ship and, um, and fortunately she didn't land in the water. She bounces off a lifeboat, bounces off the rail. You know, she basically keeps falling down, you know, bouncing off the rails and the lifeboats until she fell to her death on the deck, uh, several floors below, several decks below. And we began taking a look at the evidence. She was all bumped and bruised. And there was, you know, and we began looking into him and he had a history of domestic violence where he would like choke women out. And she had a uh, broken uh, blood vessels in her eyes called petechia, which are indicative of someone who was being, who had been choked strangled but still a very circumstantial case because this woman was so battered going down if we were trying to build a case solely on her wounds welcome back to another episode of cold red i'm ray carr and with me always is jim james r fitzgerald fitz fitz how are you i'm great welcome to season three everyone it's uh we have a very interesting guest today a retired special agent with an illustrious 26-year career working white-collar crimes and tending to some really sensitive national security matters at the FBI. Tom Simon. Tom, it's welcome so, to the show. Well, thank you. It's so good to be here, and I appreciate you having me. Outstanding. Outstanding. Tom, tell us a little bit about uh, about you, uh, some of your backstory. How did you come up to wind up with the FBI? Well, I, you know, I grew up in Chicago and uh, I was always kind of a, a bookish kid, you know, comic books and action novels and mysteries. And so I wanted to do something, uh, you know, to make me feel like a superhero for a living. And I thought I'd be spending a lot of time jumping off moving trains as an FBI agent. And, but uh, you know, the, the career was a lot more interesting in other ways. But anyway, so uh, I majored in accounting because I knew the FBI liked accountants. And uh, then I went to Clemson University in South Carolina. And then at age 25, uh, the hiring freeze kind of was lifted in 1995. And I, um, I went on board and became an agent. I was an agent for 26 years in Chicago, Honolulu, and Jacksonville. So it was a fantastic career. And I look back on it as, uh, with just nothing but pride and good feelings. Outstanding. So you were a new agent in 95. But before that, you worked for uh, as a, an accountant with, was it a state agency? Now, I was with a, a big accounting firm. I was a CPA with a firm called KPMG. And right. I started out in their audit practice, and uh, I didn't really like that a whole lot because I didn't really ever want to be an accountant, right? Accounting was a means to an end to become an agent. And, uh, but so, and that was around the window of time where a lot of the accounting firms were opening up forensic and investigative services practices right. to do investigations for clients. And so I, I got to do that. And that was nice because it provided me a bit, a bit of a safety net, right? I was able to know that if for some reason the FBI didn't come through for me, I could be a professional investigator uh, for my career. And so did that for a couple of years until the hiring freeze was lifted. And then I, then I came on board with the FBI. I know you were doing some forensic work, but then, didn't you help out some agencies, state agencies back in your uh, days with the accounting firm, some criminal type cases back then? No, not at all. No, the, uh, okay. the state agencies generally have their own investigators, right? And so, you know, my clients were all big corporations that had, um, you know, embezzlements or cooking the books or, or other problems that they wanted us to come in and solve. And so we would do that, you know, whereas with the FBI, your, your case ends with the guy getting in an orange jumpsuit. My cases would end with the, the presentation to the board of directors. You know, a lot of people forget that uh, in the early days of the FBI, certainly the 70s and 80s, um, what was really wanted, um, what they really recruited were accountants and lawyers. Yeah. And neither Ray nor I are 
an accountant or a lawyer, but uh, some people knew if they wanted to have a, a better chance of getting to the FBI, you get a degree in accounting or certainly a law degree, and mm -hmm. you're really competing against fewer people to get in. It doesn't mean you're any less qualified, of course, but it certainly makes a difference. So uh, I read where you wanted to be an FBI agent since you were 13, and uh, yeah. uh, Tom, and you realized getting an accounting degree would certainly open uh, a few of those extra doors. So, so good for you. And uh, like many accountants who came into Bureau, I remember they didn't really want to do accounting work, but they still got in and they wound up doing it for a number of years anyway. But you yeah, I mean, I would, I would argue, I would make the argument that we had accountants to do the accounting work at the FBI. Uh, they hired accountants to do financial crimes and, you know, and or money laundering. And so in my 26 years, I didn't do a lick of accounting, not a single thing that I ever used my accounting degree for in 26 years. But I think the FBI liked the idea of hiring people who know in broad terms, how money flows in and out of organizations, whether that's Al Qaeda, La Cosa Nostra, or the bank account of a Ponzi schemer. And so I think that's what the that's what the agents who are accountants historically bring to the table. They're not being hired for accounting work. In fact, we have the best forensic accountants in the world working for the FBI side by side with the agents to handle that work. So that was always nice to work with them and allow them to do the actual building of the spreadsheets. And, and last thing on this regard, um... We don't hire lawyers to do lawyer work, really. Yeah, exactly. Some of them will go off to the academy and teach a handful. Some mm -hmm. of them will be the principal yeah. legal advisor divisions, but most of them don't do any legal work in their everyday jobs as special agents. So it's interesting how that plays out. It is interesting, yeah. It's almost like we're hiring people for, for skills that they're really not going to utilize on the job, but we're treating those majors and those backgrounds as, as kind of a, a proxy for an intelligence test. You know, is this, is this person a smart person who has problem-solving abilities as opposed to someone who can actually do debits and credits or, or write legal briefs, which we don't do? Interesting. You know, Tom, you came into the Bureau, and like most of us, you probably went right to the applicant squad, or maybe you didn't. No, no, Chicago didn't do that. The Chicago had a new agent squad, which is actually way better. And so in Chicago, you know, we had a new agent squad with like 50 new kids coming right out of the academy because I went through in 95. So we had a, a new class coming through every two weeks. Uh, you know, the hiring freeze had been lifted after years and years. And so we had a new agent squad. And, um, and what they would do is we would rotate through all the squads. You'd spend like a week on the bank robbery squad, a week on the fugitive squad, a week on the, the truck squad working interstate transportation of stolen properties. And, uh, and you'd be assigned like a, a fugitive case that you're never going to solve and, or some old dog white collar crime case or a, te you know, a teller embezzlement. And during your six months on that new agent squad, you were getting exposed to everything. And there was also a bit of lobbying that would go on as far as where you wanted to wind up. So you mentioned the term white collar. Yeah. What is white collar crime? When you think about white collar, just I have no idea. If, if I'm someone out there and someone says white collar, I think someone's stealing money in a company. Someone's taking the company's money. Mm -hmm. I would say it's a little broader than that. I mean, the FBI's white collar crime program really has is a two headed monster, right? We have the the financial crimes program, which are people taking money from companies, but also people taking money from individuals in Ponzi schemes and advance fee schemes. And we could talk about any of those. And the other arm of the white collar crime program is public corruption, right? The, and that's whether you're going after the you know, police who are doing the wrong things, such as taking bribes or congressmen and senators who are taking bribes or local government officials, city council people, any kind of governmental corruption falls under the FBI's umbrella. And that's also part of our white collar crime program. Most of those cases tend to have financial elements as most FBI cases do. Um, so it's broadly white collar crime. You know, a lot of times, Tom, uh, people think white collar crime and they think, 
these are just pencil pushing people that really don't do much. They don't hurt nobody. They're not violent. Can you can you either uh, can you either prove that to be true or prove it to be false? Sure. Well, I'll tell you that my first six years of the FBI was on a bank fraud squad, and some banks were my victims, and they're not the most sympathetic victims in the world, right? And there was a lot of check fraud back then, people counterfeiting checks. And I would say that the lion's share of the bad guys we were investigating were gangbangers. They were members of the you know black gangster disciples, street gangs, or the Latin king street gangs, who came to the realization that there's more money to be made with less downside when they get caught for getting involved in white collar crime. And so I was, you know, in the hood, knocking on doors in the tenements. And so, um, you know, the, you know, the likelihood of you getting shot in that case is probably substantially lower than a fugitive squad or a bank robbery squad or a violent crime squad. But I would say that the criminals have everything in the world to lose, especially even the, uh, the kind of more traditional white collar criminals, the guy in the suburb. That's a guy whose life is going to be turned on its head if he has to spend 18 months in prison. His, you know, his reputation in the community is just ruined. And a lot of these guys, um, you know, they may not decide to shoot the agent, but they may decide to shoot themselves. Hmm. True. So you run through uh, these squads and how long is that tenement last where you're running through from squad to squad the the new agent squad was a in chicago and and i think they've long since stopped doing that it was a six-month process and so you spend your first six months out of the academy um kind of cycling through the various squads and being kind of a just a pool of resources for the squad. If they, you, you know, you would sit there at your desk and an agent would duck, in, duck their head in and say, I need 10 people for a search today. Who's available? And everybody's hand would shoot up and he'd say, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, nine, 10. Come on, let's go. And then he would go and do a search of somebody's house. So we were kind of used as unskilled labor in the Chicago division to go, you know, work just whatever they needed doing. Or if you need, they needed somebody to go proof an interview with them, just be the second body. You just go grab somebody. And so that was the informal version of it. The formalized version was people cycling people through the various squads. So where did you land? I landed on a bank fraud squad and, uh, and my supervisor of the new agent squad, you know, cause I, I wanted to do something interesting, you know, in my mind, more violent and kind of swashbuckling and, you know, a gang squad, a public corruption squad. At the time we had fugitive squads. They're going out doing arrests every day. And he pulls me aside and he says, Tom, we don't hire CPAs because you're fun to be around. We <laughs> hire you because you may have some acumen and the ability to, to do financial crimes. So why don't you go to the bank fraud squad? And I think you're going to love it. And he's right. I ended up falling in love with it. And white collar crime really kind of became my thing. It's interesting. You were in Chicago, Tom. Um, and we're about 60 years before you got there, of course, the 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 uh, the head of the Chicago mob, maybe the whole country mob, Al Capone, was taken down. Yeah. And, you know, uh, it was actually a Treasury case, but it was because basically they had accountants or certainly people with business backgrounds look at the fact that uh, he wasn't paying his taxes. Absolutely. And a yeah. uh, little different than what you may have done in your bureau career, but certainly it came down to number crunching to put, you know, the biggest mobster ever away, uh, certainly in the U.S., or one of them, uh, in jail back in the 1930s. And uh, they couldn't get them for the killings and the racketeering and the bringing in the booze from Canada, but they got them for not paying taxes. And uh, it was it was someone with an accounting background, such as yourself and the, and the folks in the Bureau and other agencies now, that helped do that. So a uh, good way to start off in that particular field for some of these agencies. 
I think so. And I think it's important to understand also that while the FBI may silo agents into squads, the criminals don't care about that siloing, right? No. I, my very first case in the white collar crime squad was a, a, a large embezzlement from an insurance company. But the guy who did the embezzlement was an Italian American guy who was mixed up with the mob. And he was a bookmaker for the mob who was placing bets himself, also got himself over his head with his mob bosses and needed to steal the money to pay them off. So it provides... And this guy was all over a Title III wiretap that was going on at the time as kind of the mafia bosses were putting pressure on him to pay his gambling debts. And you can almost align the pressure he was getting with the instances of embezzlement in my little you know, insurance company embezzlement case. And so our, it, it escalated the case for me because instead of just doing a information and plea agreement or an indictment and arrest of a, a very benign white collar crime, it became a situation where we bring the guy in, where we begin pitching him on the idea of cooperating against his the mob bosses in exchange for a deal in my white collar crime cases. He declined uh, because I think he figured that he would rather do his 18 to 24 months in prison on my piddly little case than risk his life wearing a wire against his mob bosses. But it really kind of underscored to me how how it's a how the criminals don't really care about what, how we classify a case, right? They're going to do what they got to do to survive, make money, and kind of create havoc in society. And that doesn't necessarily fall into neat categorizations as we did at the FBI. Go ahead, Jim. I was going to say, yeah, Tom, you mentioned the term Ponzi scheme a few times already. Mm -hmm. And I think our audience probably has a general idea what yeah. that is, sort of a pyramid element to it. But could you explain a little more about that? And there actually was a guy named yeah. Charles Ponzi, an Italian American here in the U.S., and he's the one that kind of uh, forever will be linked to uh, to this sort of crime uh, due to his last name. So tell us a little bit about how that whole thing came about and how yeah. it's set up and used even in, in modern day. Barney, Bernie Madoff basically had a Ponzi sure. scheme, right? Let me, let me describe what a Ponzi scheme is, and then we'll give a little historical context. A Ponzi scheme is any investment fraud where I'm actually paying investment returns. So I'm, I'm selling Fitz and Ray here on an investment that's gonna pay 6% a week. And you're like, well, that's fantastic. And I lie to you. I tell you that I'm gonna be investing that money in foreign currency trading, Forex trading. And you're gonna give me your money and you're gonna get 6% a week. Unlike other investment frauds where I take the money and skedaddle, with a Ponzi scheme, you actually get returns back. But what you don't know is that I have not, infest, in fact, invested your money. I'm cycling your own money and the money of other investors back to you to create the illusion of investment returns, right? And that's what's called a Ponzi scheme. And, it, and the reason it's so insidious is because then it becomes viral. Because when you begin getting your 6% a week, what are you going to do? You're going to tell your brothers. You're going to tell the guys on your basketball team. You're going to tell the guys you lift weights with. You're going to tell everybody who, that you know that you've got this fantastically handsome guy, Tom Simon, who's giving you 6% a week on your investment. He is a foreign currency trading genius, and they, it spreads virally. The problem is, as with all pyramid-type schemes, eventually it collapses under its own weight. You need to bring in so many new investors investors to pay off the old investors who are being lied to about where this money is coming from, that it collapses. Now, meanwhile, every step of the way, the bad guy is putting money in his own pocket. The term Ponzi scheme originated, as you said, in Boston around 1910. A guy named Charles Ponzi ran an investment fraud of this very nature. Charles Ponzi's scheme was telling people, he was playing what he called arbitrage between the idea that you could buy uh, postage stamps overseas for international mailing and then redeem them at a slightly higher price than you purchased them at here in the US. 
um, which was probably true to a point, but he, it went so viral with the millions and millions of dollars he was taking in it from uh, working class people in Boston that there was no stamp trading involved at all with this. He was just paying people back. It's interesting to note that the term Ponzi scheme stuck with him because this type of fraud and this sort of like economic way of, of running a fraud had been around since ancient Greek, right? There'd been Ponzi schemes long before there was a Charles Ponzi, but for whatever reason, this guy captured the public's imagination. And to this day, the scheme is named after him. And obviously we've had a lot of famous people do it since, including Bernie Madoff, most famously with probably the largest one ever recorded. We've had entire nations kind of fall apart um, in Eastern Europe from Ponzi schemes. So. Hmm. Wow. That is something. So, do you spend on that uh, bankruptcy squad? Are you there for a while till you head out to Honolulu? Or okay, so what happened was this: it was a bank. It wasn't bankruptcy squad. We had another bankruptcy uh, squad that handled bankruptcy. I was in a bank fraud squad, right? So okay. people who are ripping off banks without guns, uh, check fraud and embezzlements, check kiting, loan frauds, and uh, and I did that for six years. And then I go to work on my squad, ready to do an interview on a case, and I was, I was getting pretty good stats, meaning you know indictments and informations and convictions. And then uh, I go to work on September 11, 2001, and uh, by 10, you know, 9, 10 in the morning, planes are flying into buildings in New York, and I'm looking out the window of my office at the Sears Tower wondering what's next. Yeah, yeah. We all were that day. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so and you remember what it was like, guys. You dropped everything mm -hmm. on your cases, right? You just sort of hit pause, right. and, uh, and, and then you spent 24-7 kind of working th these counterterrorism leads, some of which may have had something to do with the 9-11 attacks, some of which may have been trying to make sure that it didn't happen again. And, uh, and then when the dust settled and the smoke cleared, they began shifting a lot of bodies like me over to terrorism squads. And so I got put on a terrorism financing squad in Chicago after um, the 9-11 attacks. And I never looked back. All my bank fraud cases got reassigned. So what does that mean? You're, you're doing financing. So now you're looking into terrorist organizations and finding out how the money is coming in for those organizations. Is that what that means, Tom? Yeah, we had a very specific case that I was put on. There were um, two charities, uh, Muslim charities in Chicago, that were taking money in from kind of good Muslims who wanted to do their tithing called zakat, where they're paying money mm -hmm. uh, you know, as prescribed by their religion for the poor and needy of the Muslim world. These weren't bad people donating money to these charities. But what's happening is the charities were taking that money and laundering it. Um, in, in providing the money to uh, fighting groups, including Al Qaeda, Chechen fire, fighting groups, and uh, you know Muslim fighting groups around the world, and so it was our job to kind of prove that, dismantle the charities, and kind of stop the blood money from flowing to terrorist organizations such as Al Qaeda. And so we were a team of five agents that ended up forming a squad out of us, uh, with a, a couple designated AUSAs, and um, we spent a few years making those cases, putting the charity leaders in jail, and the ones we couldn't put in jail. We deported and we made sure those charities never ever opened their doors again. Nice. That's good stuff. Easier said than done with some of these cases. I know yeah, it's not absolutely. just easy to have a few checks going overseas here or going over there. You have to be able to get the evidence and actually prove it in court to get these convictions and shut these uh, phony uh, charities down, right? Yeah. And I mean, the evidence in these cases are difficult, right? Because once the money goes overseas, you kind of lose much of your ability to tr follow the money. And uh, so you're kind of combining the wiretaps that you had on the national security side from the FISA warrants you had and the intelligence you're getting from that, from the intelligence you're getting from human sources to the, um, you know, to the money flowing in and how it's flowing out. We had some overseas cooperation from uh, from countries in like uh, Bosnia that was providing us information as to how the money was being spent there. 
and uh, we had some search warrants done at by foreign governments who turned over their documents to us. In one of those searches, we found the founding documents of Al Qaeda, the, um, because the leader of one of these charities was an Afghan uh, mujahideen who was you know side by side with Osama bin Laden in those days. And uh, as that war against the Afghan Soviet war was kind of ramping down, they were sort of putting the list together uh, to form Al Qaeda. It's kind of, you know, it's really kind of a database. I mean, Al Qaeda means the base. You know, you, you mentioned the, the term FISA. Yeah. And I know that was in the news quite a bit uh, back in Trump's first presidency. Mm-hmm. Uh, what exactly, for our listeners' purposes, what sure. exactly, when you say FISA, what does that mean? Sure. A FISA court is the, help me out, it's the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, right, is the what it stands for. But what it really is, is a parallel proceeding, a parallel series of court proceedings where you can take national security cases and um, and get things like wiretaps or searches or, or documents. And the means by which that happens is you need to say, you need to explain to the, you need to prove, prove, I imagine probable cause to believe that that the individuals you are seeking to wiretap are agents of a foreign power. And uh, so it may be an American who's working on behalf of Russia or China or Al Qaeda, or it could just be an actual foreigner who's in our country um, using the phones. And so you get a warrant, just like you would get a Title III warrant from an actual judge who's assigned to the FISA court. And then you, you know, you go up on that wiretap the way you would any other wiretap. And and uh, I was, in fact, everyone was criticizing making it seem like FISA was some sort of easy shortcut to get a wiretap. I found it to be. I've done Title III cases and I've done FISA cases. I found FISA to be way more scrutiny um, for me. And uh, so I, I'm always sort of scratching my head when I hear people criticize the FISA court as being like it's just a vending machine that you go get a wiretap warrant because that wasn't my experience at all. I, I totally agree with you with that. Totally agree. Yeah. I, I don't want to get too far ahead, but anyone who's listening or watching, uh, uh, Tom, you do own uh, or you are run, I guess you're CEO president of Simon Worldwide Investigations. Yes. And if someone has a a corruption problem, a white collar problem in their company, they can contact you and, and at your website, phone numbers. And we can talk about that towards the end. Yeah of our presentation, but I, we know you're retired now from the FBI, mm-hmm. but you're still very busy in that regard, but we still have a few uh, matters uh, from your FBI days. Yeah, sure. And I think Ray started it and you're in Chicago. Uh, that was your uh, first office, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And then uh, at what year was it? 2006 or so you went to Hawaii? Well, the, you know, the, Terrorism financing thing ended, and then we uh, we decided, and then I got switched to a public corruption squad, and we had a problem in Chicago at that time with the governor who was real crooked named Rod Blagojevich, and right. so this is around the window of time that President Barack Obama was elected president. So with them in two thousand eight, that two thousand eight presidential election, Obama was our senator in Illinois. And so when he got elected president, that creates a vacancy in the Senate. And so the people of Illinois were not being represented fully because we were missing a senator. The state constitution says that the governor gets to name, it gets to appoint someone to that seat until the next election rolls around. And uh, our governor, Rob Blagojevich, saw that appointment as something absolutely golden that he could monetize. And so we were up on a wiretap with him during that window of time surrounding after the election, where he's trying to actually sell Barack Obama's former Senate seat um, to for money that he would get himself. And so we ended up taking down that case and arresting the governor. And I, and I want to make sure it's abundantly clear because I don't want to take credit for someone else's work. I was on that case, but I was not the case agent, right? There were better looking and smarter people than me running that case. 
but I was running the wiretap at his uh, at of his residence where kind of all the sexy calls were taking place. So I felt like I was kind of hip deep in that world for a while, and then. Um, while they were ramping up for the first trial, I really never rolled in that trial because the case agents were shepherding it through with the prosecutors and an opportunity came up to transfer to Honolulu, Hawaii, and I put up my hand and got transferred. Hey, Cold Red fans, Fitz here. Are you interested in a career in criminal justice? You've heard me talk about numerous cases I've worked over the years involving the scientific analysis of language known as forensic linguistics. Well, Pennsylvania Western University now has a fully accredited MA program, which I actually co-develop, where I teach forensic linguistics along with various other excellent professors, too. This is the only forensic linguistic graduate program in the world, which is both online and asynchronous. That means the courses are 100% on your schedule. We have professor video recordings, academic readings, and real-life case exercises posted weekly, and you can access any time to review and then complete the week's assignment. If you're interested in learning how written and spoken language can help solve crimes and get a master's degree at the same time, check out the Pennsylvania Western University's Forensic Linguistics Program at www.penwest.edu justice. It's always interesting working a wiretap and anyone out there who's uh, only a few of us in law enforcement have that opportunity. Uh, but people don't always realize there's, there's rules called minimization that every, if they're not actually talking about criminal offenses, you're supposed to shut it off and then come back on uh, two to three minutes later. But of course, crooks and criminals, perhaps even dirty politicians, they know how to work around that. So mm-hmm. what was there? I worked a serial killer wire where the uh, AUSA said, you have no minimization order at all. So listen full time all the time. And that was pretty rare. But some other mob wires I worked, you know, every three to five minutes, you yeah. shut it down. So were you doing uh, things with that with, when the governor, with the governor's wiretap too? Obviously, we were we were told to minimize, and but once we what we found is that this guy just never shut up. He was like this motor mouth politician, and he was on the phone the whole time, and he was just talking to advisors and everyone else, and he was really brazen with his inner circle about you know his his this difficult decision he had about who he was going to make the senator. So there wasn't a whole lot of minimization in those cases, but it wasn't my only wiretap, right? I had done wiretaps throughout the course of my twenty six year career, and so my experience was the same as yours. You, you know, as soon as they start talking to their wife about what's for dinner that night or what groceries to pick up. That's none of our business as agents. And that's not what, and the warrant doesn't cover that. So you shut it down and the software now is way better that, you, you know, once you shut it down, it's not recording and you can't listen to it. And then you do these spot checks where you like, listen, I'll oh, still talking to the wife. Then you put it down. Then you still talking to the wife and the, you got to do it right or else the defense attorneys are going to absolutely kill you by saying you weren't minimizing and you run the risk of losing all the evidence you got in that wiretap if you're playing games, right? If the guy's having phone sex with his girlfriend, you think, oh, it's going to be fun to listen to this. No, that's none of your business and you better hang it up and minimize that because if you don't, a defense attorney is going to ram it right up your keister down the road and it's going to embarrass you and the agency. And yet the bad guys know that. And sometimes they'll slip out something uh, talking about their wife with dinner. Then all of a sudden, hey, tell yeah. Chauncey five o'clock tonight, see him at the usual place. And yes, honey, and make sure we have baked potatoes with, uh, you know, butter and, uh, you know, uh, sour cream. So but the, the bad guys know about that. And the same lawyers you're talking about sticking it up keisters, they instruct their clients how to get around those things, even when they're involved in the crimes themselves. Yeah, it's, it's like a hockey game, you know, a, really couple, a, a, a couple pucks are going to slip by even the best goalie. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. Absolutely. You know, so you're in Honolulu and then there's a time when you get to Jacksonville, but 
Yes. I'm not sure, and you can maybe fill in the blank here for me, Tom. At one point, and, and this is, I think, is kind of unique for you, is you get to uh, go into an undercover uh, position mm -hmm. uh, in a human trafficking investigation. Tell us where that was and how that came about. Right. So I guess for your, for your, your listeners' purposes, uh, not every agent gets to go undercover. And undercover work is not mandatory at the FBI, right? You raise your hand at some point and, and volunteer to go to undercover school, and then you go through a series of psychological tests and interviews. Uh, and if you're chosen for undercover school, you go. Those two weeks of undercover school is just miserable. I mean, it's like I never was in the military, and but so just a lot of hazing, sleep deprivation, and they're putting you through scenario after scenario in our in I did it at Quantico at Hogan's Alley, this fake city that they have made up. And and you're just getting your your you know, your rear end kicked every step of the way by these senior agents playing the role players. So anyway, but somehow I graduated and passed. I was doing undercover work. And most of the undercover work I was doing was like Tom, the banker guy or Tom, the money launderer, or Tom, the, the rich guy who wants to make an investment. And then uh, late in my career, uh, the FBI began uh, getting way more involved in human trafficking. It became a real priority in the violent crime program. And uh, by human trafficking, what we really mean is the trafficking is, is pimping out women. Um, the best case scenario is that the women are, are, you know, young girls or teenagers, because then we can have the best societal impact by rescuing these girls. But, you know, a lot of the women who are prostitutes out there are addicts being controlled by pimps. So whether they're forced to be there because their addiction or forced to be there because uh, threatened arrest really was immaterial to us. So the FBI began doing an operation every year called Operation Cross Country. And the way it was set up was the, the F, it, it turned the whole dynamic of prostitution investigations on its head. And the FBI said, you know what, the prostitutes here are the victims of these crimes. Um, they're, um, the, and so what we're going to do is we're going to actually pretend to be um, Johns soliciting prostitutes, bringing them to our hotel room. And, uh, and then we're going to have surveillance teams on the outside, keeping an eye on who the pimp is, who drives them there. And then when the, the, the prostitute's going to come into my hotel room, because that's what I did as the John, and we're going to make the deal or for sex or money, and then agents are going to come in the room and take her away to another room to debrief her and ask her, you know, do you want to get, you want, can we get you into a shelter? Can we get you into a drug rehab? You know, talk to me about who your pimp is. And meanwhile, the agents outside have now stopped the pimp and identified him to try to um, understand who he is. But instead of just arresting him that night and having him let go the next day, they're getting the intelligence about who that guy is hopefully getting the prostitute, whether she's a child, in which case we don't have to ask their permission and get her to safety in her shelter and social services, or if she's an adult, see if she's willing and interested in getting the help she needs. The bottom line is we're identifying these pimps on the ground where they, uh, you know, when they're dropping these girls off, and then we're building enterprise investigations against them, you know, looking into their bank accounts and trying to develop some sort of racketeering case or other enterprise investigations. So they're getting hit with real federal charges instead of just the night in, night in jail they would get on the local charges. And it's been a tremendous success for the FBI. And it was a very interesting project to be a part of. Did you have anything to do with the project out of uh, Annapolis uh, where they were doing child porn? No, I, I, I guess I want to make it also clear because I never, you know, how culturally I, I never want to take credit for other agents work. I was just the unskilled labor. All right. I was a um, I was just an undercover agent that was used because I, I seemed like a credible guy who was like a 50 year old dude who couldn't get laid. Right. So there are actual like hero agents out there who are working these cases full time 
you know, seven days a week, you know, saving these women and building the cases against these bad guys. I was a financial crimes guy who just happened to be an undercover agent who, who appeared to be kind of a credible middle-aged divorcee bringing prostitutes to his room, which is why I was chosen to do that. So that was not my area of expertise, but the undercover work was. Yeah, but that had to be very satisfying for you. I mean, think about what you did uh, and the difference you made and just that little piece of what you did. I thought I think that's fantastic. I think it's a great operation. And I think the case agents deserve all the credit in the world for what they did. I was just, you know, when you're the undercover, if you're doing it right, you're just kind of a potted plant with a microphone. And so, um, and you know, and these girls are, they, you know, they know what they're there for. So there wasn't a whole lot of like finessing and negotiating that needed to take place. It's not like I was at a singles bar having to convince women to go to bed with me. She was there for that purpose. Well, in season two, we had Joe Pistone, AKA Donnie Brasco. Mm -hmm. And he of course went long-term undercover. That's one kind of operation. But don't, you know, don't belittle or, or question yourself. You were kind of parachuted in to some of these investigations, but your role was also pivotal. Uh, I, I bought drugs once as a cop. You know, I had long hair and, and you know, I didn't mm-hmm. shave for a few days. And, and it, it, it's a nerve-wracking experience because, you know, there are bad guys around you. And even for the woman, you didn't have too much concern about. There was her pimp outside and who knows what kind of posse he had with him. And things could go south. And every once in a while, they do. So, um, we, you know, we, the FBI did need folks like you, even as you described yeah. yourself in sort of, uh, uh, you know, minimized terms there. But uh, the cases wouldn't be made if we didn't have some of these UCs come in and do just what you uh, what you did there. I no doubt the case agents very much were appreciative of that. Yeah, no, I mean, they were. And, and the undercovers have an important role in that. And I was proud to be a part of it. It's just culturally at the FBI, it's still a minefield in my ethical mind to never, ever take credit for another agent's oh, work. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, did this happen when you were in uh, Hawaii or did it? I did this in Jacksonville. It was just a couple of years ago. Yeah. And uh, and so and it was also just it was just dumb luck. It, you know, agents are constantly churning and coming and going. Jacksonville just at the time didn't have any other certified undercover agents. And so I was the undercover coordinator, but I was really only kind of coordinating myself because there were right. no way, because just the, the cycle of agents coming and going and retiring and transferring, uh, just that window of time, I was the only, the only logical choice. And, um, and it was, it was just an interesting assignment. It was something different than the, uh, the embezzlements and the financial crime stuff. Just back to this case, though, were these women coming in from overseas, Mexico? Yeah, it was kind of neat. So you you don't know, right? So what happened, we have this, imagine a a room, kind of a war room filled with like smart young analysts in this area who are going online with burner phones, making dates with these girls. Okay, you come at at 815 to this room, and then, you know, the next girl, maybe 840. And so we're just cycling through these girls back to back to back over the course of an evening or two. And, um, and so they're, you know, they're texting with the girls pretending to be me. And I, and actually what we know now is that it's the pimps on the other end of the phone pretending to be the girls uh, making these dates. And so the, the FBI's goal was they were taking a look at the pictures of the girls online to shoot young, right? Let's see if we can find that, that 14 year old girl, that 15 year old girl, that runaway who's being turned out by a pimp. Uh, but you never really know, right? Sometimes it's an entirely different girl who shows up and then one in the picture. And so we got a couple teenage girls who were underage and we could get them into shelters and hopefully get them help. Um, but I would say the lion's share of the girls we had were probably in their 20s and seriously, seriously addicted to either uh, opiates or crystal methamphetamine. And that seemed to be the common denominator is that that was how the pimps kind of held them there. Some of them were traveling around the nation with the pimp, kind of setting up camp in this city for a week, in this city for a week. 
And then you have in-call and out-call. Sometimes the girl sets up in a hotel room and begins bringing dates in. We were doing a out-call operation where I'm in my hotel room bringing the girl in to me. Because then we can control the environment a little better. I don't know if either of you um, saw the movie Sound of Freedom. I watched it about a week or two ago. More sexual trafficking, very young kids and uh, overseas based on a true story. And I would suggest to our listeners and our our viewers to uh, definitely check that movie out to get a, uh, you know, certainly a more in-depth international look at some of the stuff Tom's talking about here. But yeah, that's that's a a problem we have right now. My limited involvement in this, and we're really only talking about a few nights, was um, was I did not come upon any people who were like brought against their will from other countries. That was not the demographic we were dealing with. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Uh, I'm just saying that it, it's not what we came upon. It's it's way sadly in our nation we don't really need to import women against their wills. There's enough addicts mm-hmm. and, and and women who are making kind of poor life decisions because they had bad families and home situations that we can, we, we can fulfill that demand here, sadly. And the pimps that will of course take advantage of that. Oh, without question. And every one of these girls thought that pimp was their boyfriend. Yeah. Uh, like, is he your pimp? No, he's my boyfriend. Well, he's pimping sure. you out. Yeah. But you know, they, they see pimping as a verb, not a noun. <laughs> yeah. Good point. That's just a good point. A really good point. Uh, just to kind of wrap up your bureau career here. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was probably the most fascinating case? Like every agent that I know always talks about that one case. Yeah. What was that one case for you? I had a case, again, people think that the FBI is working murder cases all the time, but murders are very seldom a federal crime, right? It either has to be a serial killer who's bouncing across state lines and they're less common than uh, network TV would make you think, or it has to happen on a federal reservation or an Indian reservation, um, but at, or the high seas. And so pretty late in my career, just a couple of years ago, I had a case where a, um, a woman went off the balcony of her cruise ship that was leaving that had left Jacksonville and um, it was destined for Freeport Bahamas. And, um, and fortunately she didn't land in the water. She bounces off a lifeboat, bounces off the rate. You know, she basically keeps falling down, you know, bouncing off the rails and the lifeboats until she fell to her death on the deck, uh, several floors below, several decks below. And, uh, and at the time her boyfriend who was in the room with her, some of the neighbors had heard them fighting. Right. And uh, and so they get to Freeport, Bahamas, the Bahamian police are unable to make a case and cut him loose. And so he goes back to Topeka, where he was from. And we began taking a look at the evidence. She was all bumped and bruised. And there was, you know, and we began looking into him. And he had a history of domestic violence where he would like choke women out. And she had uh, broken uh, blood vessels in her eyes called petechia, uh, which are indicative of someone who was being who had been choked or strangled. And so with that information, but still a very circumstantial case, because this woman was so battered going down, if we were trying to build a case solely on her wounds, a defense attorney would have eaten us alive, right? You know, we we definitely have a pathologist say, well, particularly happens when you're strangled. But again, we're talking about a woman who went, who had some severe injuries and blunt force trauma. And so I flew out to Topeka and uh, invited the guy to meet me at the police station ostensibly so I could update him on the case um, and, uh, and, and all that. And he came in, sat down, and I interrogated him for a while. And then he, he actually confessed to the murder. He said he picked yeah. her up by her throat in a, when they got into an argument and threw her over the balcony to her death. And so he ended up pleading guilty and went to prison for that. And that was just um, being able to do that for the victim's family and give them closure uh, still to this day means a lot to me. Yeah, I bet it does. 
Tom, do you think his goal was to have her land in the water? I know how these. Nah, there was no his. He was. He's one of these guys who should never ever drink. You know, mm-hmm. you know that friend of yours that you have who's kind of a nice guy, but then as soon as he gets like a couple belts into him, he's like taking a swing at you. That's this guy. And this guy also had a problem with the women in his life when he would drink. He would get violent. And his move from having talked to several of his former girlfriends is he would walk up to the women, grab them by the throat and push them against like the garage door or wherever they happen to be. This time where they happen to be was the railing of a, a cruise ship. And he just kept pushing. Yeah, real, real tough guy. Um uh, but you just think how that case would have been different if somehow she went over the side. Oh, we no would body. have no physical. We, I mean, we'd have no physical evidence, and then the uh, the interrogation would have needed to be um, that much better. Um, yeah. And those those cases do happen, of course, where the where the victim goes over the side. Oh, but it's not always that time. easy. It was, it was it was just because they were you know they they had an in- interior room that we got lucky. Do you actually go on the cruise? Did you actually inter- interview anyone on the cruise itself? The cruise uh, yeah. liner? Yeah, we talked to, um, you know, like there's a whole, believe it or not, people die on these cruises all the time. And oh, yeah. so there's a whole procedure in place and there's security officers on the boat who are actually very good as far as collecting evidence and uh, and getting statements from witnesses. And then we kind of circled back and and talked to the, uh, the people in or, or set leads to have the, the neighbors on the boat talk to. Like, what did you hear? What was going on in the, you know, what, what kind of fight did you hear? And um, and from that, we were able to put together a pretty good circumstantial case. But to this day, I think that the confession was really what nailed it. Usually does. Yeah. I think every one of these cruise liners, the larger one, has it's a well-kept secret. They have a little mini morgue. They that have they to. Can, I mean, yeah, yeah. The clientele yeah. there is, you know, you got one foot in the grave, half of them. <laughs> and the other foot is uh, yeah. when they put that yeah. bottles of yeah, wild booze down. combination of the all-you-can-drink package and the octogenarians yeah. is going to fill Good that thing. morgue up. Uh, yeah. I like the name of one of the cases you worked, and I, I think it was involving the University of Hawaii, the uh, Stevie Wonder Blunder. <laughs> that was a great case. All right, so imagine this. Um, the, some, a couple con artists reach out for the university of Hawaii and say, how would you like to host a Stevie wonder concert? And not a whole lot of big acts like to go to uh, have concerts in Hawaii. Cause it's just so expensive to get your crew there and the equipment there and the stage there. It's just, so, you know, we would get like a lot of like tribute bands and local bands in Hawaii, but the idea of Stevie wonder coming to town was a big deal. And so the university of Hawaii pays the $250,000 down payment to these concert promoters who uh, were representing Stevie wonder ostensibly and, um, and tickets go on sale. And, uh, and, People I know, agents in my office were excited to go to the show or buying buying tickets to see Stevie Wonder in concert. And then that day, Stevie Wonder's manager gets a cell phone call from Stevie Wonder or Stevie Wonder's agent gets a phone call from Stevie Wonder's manager saying, saying, I just got a Google alert that Stevie's performing in Honolulu. Do you know anything about this? They're like, we know nothing about it. No one in Stevie Wonder's camp had any idea that this concert had been sold. And so obviously it was because it was the University of Hawaii, um, it became a big local story. And, you know, $250,000 fraud is peanuts in the kind of big picture of the FBI. But man, oh, man, the president of the University of Hawaii ended up getting fired. The athletic director was in disgrace. And I ended up having to fly all over the place to find these people who had sold the Stevie Wonder show and bring charges against them. I ended up going to Mallorca, Spain and to interview witnesses. And finally, we were able to get two guys 
and they both pled guilty. One of whom uh, went went to prison. He's in North Carolina, and the other was a British guy who was deported to England after the case. But yeah, it was such a huge. It was probably one of my biggest cases as far as media attention because there's not a lot of crime in Hawaii, right? And so right. every little crime that happens there is major news. And then, then when the university had egg on their face in such a huge public way, um, it was just one of those things where everything that could have gone wrong went wrong for the poor university. And um, and just what a fun case that was to work. Was John Pikus the SAC out in Honolulu then? Was he the SAC then? No, he was not the SAC under that. It was a woman named Vita Bottom was the SAC for that one. Okay. So let me ask you this, and just for, for our listeners' purposes. Yeah. A lot of times they say the FBI had these white-collar crimes, but not every white-collar crime is investigated by the FBI. Right. There's usually a floor. Uh, what is the floor, the general dollar amount that has to be lost by the individual for the FBI to even get involved in, in some of these white collar cases. Sure. Well, you know, that varies from city to city, right? And um, and so, you know, in Chicago, it's a lot higher than it was in Honolulu. And uh, and the FBI was always loath to disclose that number to anyone because if you're a smart white collar criminal would just embezzle right up to that amount and take their chances with Honolulu PD. Um, but, you know, I would, I liked, and also the, the case when it comes in the door, you don't necessarily know the loss at that point, especially in an investment fraud, because what will happen is, you know, I'll have four people telling me they were ripped off in an investment fraud. Then when I begin looking into the bad guy's bank accounts, I see dozens and dozens more victims who had not yet reached out for the FBI, who may not even know they were defrauded. They're, th they're just waiting for their investment to mature. I think as a rule of thumb, in a big city, you're going to want to see a million dollar losses and small cities, you're going to want to see into the six figures. But that's not written in stone. I opened plenty of cases where there's a twenty or thirty thousand dollar loss, um, with the sincere belief that it's going to grow. There's also other factors involved. If it's, um, you know, if you get into governmental corruption, if if the government, if it's a government official who's committing the fraud and he just steals forty thousand dollars from the, the um, the drug buy money at the Kauai Police Department, we're going to work that case because it's so important to that to maintain the integrity of these government officials. We're going to do the case, not because the person's going to spend the rest of their lives breaking rocks in the hot sun, but because we need to get them out of government ASAP. Tom, in, in these type cases, um, probably hard to quantify, but how often do the victims of these uh, Ponzi schemes or these frauds, how often do they get their money back in some form of restitution? And if they do, what even percentage of money do yeah. they get back? Yeah, it, 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 it's staggeringly low, right? Because we get yeah. two kicks at the can, right? There's the forfeiture, seizure and forfeiture kick at the can, where if I can identify that the bad guy took the victim's money and spent it on something like a car or a house or jewelry or gold or a watch, um, or maybe it's sitting in a bank account somewhere, I can then seize that money go through a forfeiture process and get the get that money back to the victims, right? But most guys, most bad guys aren't stealing money so they can pad their 401k. They're stealing money because they want to spend it. Maybe they're spending it on drugs. Maybe they're gambling in a way. Maybe they got a girlfriend on the side. Um, that's why you steal money, right? You don't do it so you can like sock it away for 20 years in the future. And so then your, our second kick of the can is the restitution. And then you mentioned that. What happens is at the time of sentencing, there's three components to every sentence. There's 
there's your prison sentence, if any, and then there's a period of probation in the federal system that's called supervised release. Usually it's about three years, right? And then there's an order of restitution for the amount of money that has not been paid back by the bad guy saying, okay, you got me, here's some money back or during forfeiture. And, um, but the problem you're going to run into is that the bad guy can't pay that while he's sitting in prison, right? And when he gets out, his earning potential is severely diminished because he's an ex-con who probably had his name in the paper as being a guy who ripped people off. And so while he was living large as a bad guy, maybe in a nice neighborhood with a fancy job, when he gets out of prison, he's going to be bagging groceries or doing, you know, or having some menial job. And then what happens is during that window of time, a supervised release U.S. probation is going to begin garnishing a percentage of his wages and getting that back to the victims. But it's an insultingly small amount that goes back to the victims, right? They get they get a check every month for like fifteen, twenty dollars, and um, you know, and they don't let us take their kidneys and sell them on Craigslist to get the money back. So there's just no. So the victims end up truly being victims in these things. They can take the time to perfect their their order of restitution into a civil judgment and begin leaning their property if they want. But the juice usually isn't worth the squeeze because these people are broke and they spend the rest of their lives trying to rebuild their lives. And so the victims, I always told them that the FBI were very good at putting people in orange jumpsuits, but were not very good bill collectors. And I'm sure there's recidivists among these people, too. Sure. They get Sometimes, out after yeah. a few years. They'll yeah. start some other scheme. Yeah. But the, the, those victims don't get – the original victims don't get restitution, nor will the new ones. Right. So, you know, I had some frequent flyers who uh, went to prison, <laughs> got out, and decided they wanted to – you know, that this is all they know how to do. And, uh, and you know, but it all becomes just sort of, you know, ledger you – know, entries in some ledger in the U.S. In the – in the Justice Department because no one's getting paid back. So eventually you decide to make the jump and you decide to hang up the spikes and go into <laughs> yeah. private life. I did. Yeah. So what happened was this, I, I did, I did the math. So in 2021, no, I'm sorry. Yeah. In 2021, I turned 51. And so at that point I had 26 years in, so I was eligible to retire, but not mandatory. But 2021 was a significant year because that was the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And as you guys know, after the attacks, we hired a bazillion people. The CIA hired a bazillion people. The, the U.S. military ramped up their, their intel force. And all those guys were just hitting their 20 years in. And they were going to be getting out and competing for jobs with me. And they're all smarter and better looking than I am. And so there, so the, the idea of competing with all these people, I wanted to get out on the front end of that before all those people were retiring, which is happening as we speak and, uh, and open up my own PI firm, establish it, get a client base, begin kind of become a trusted person for, uh, for my clients to go to, because I see the wave of people coming as these like retirements, the kind of the post nine 11 hires are now all retiring and they're all out there circulating the resume and some percentage of them are going to be opening up their own PI firms. What's it take to be a, every state is a little bit different, but yeah. a PI, of course, is private investigator. Um, what does it take? Do you have to be former law enforcement in Florida? What kind of credit, credit certification? How does that whole process work? Yeah, so Florida has, so you pass that and then, and then they soak you for a bunch of money. Uh, they, cause you gotta pay, you gotta pay a bunch of money and get a license to be a private investigator. But oh no, that doesn't allow you to have a private investigate, investigative agency that allows you to work for someone else. You gotta pay, pay a bunch of money and do the, all the forms to become an agency. 
And then if you want to carry a gun, then you got to get a third license to carry a gun as a private investigator, whereas everyone else in Florida just carries a gun because they, it's their constitutional right to do so. I'm the only one in Florida, I guess, who has to get permission to carry a gun. <laughs> and um, and then uh, and then you're fully licensed, but your problem is where are you going to get the clients? And so then you got to get out there and start selling yourself to uh, bring in the clients. And at first, it's kind of a humbling experience, and you spend your time uh, following around cheating husbands and cheating wives and looking for lost dogs. And then hopefully you build a good client base doing what you're best at. And in my case, that's white collar crime. So most of my practice right now, nearly all my clients are financial crime clients. What are, are you allowed in Florida? Are you, are you allowed to do criminal history checks, background mm -hmm. checks, firearms checks that I think the regular citizen can't necessarily do? Yeah. So what happens is there's there's about four or five big data providers that uh, that provide money to licensed private investigators. And uh, and so I pay a f and that becomes it's like NCIC was for us and uh, or any of the other databases. And so I spend a fortune uh, kind of subscribing to these databases, which serve as the engine of my firm, right? To, it tells me where people are laying their head at night, where are they paying their bills, where are they paying their utilities, uh, what's their criminal history, uh, so I don't walk into a shooting gallery. And, um, and so I utilize that one to provide information to my clients who may want to know if the, the guy that their daughter is dating is an ex-con, or to tell me where the little old lady lives who's serving as a money mule for a Nigerian fraud. And so, um, so yeah, so the database is, you know, it, it was nice at the FBI because they were free to me, but now I pay, now I pay a fortune for worse information. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're near as good as the FBI had. Yeah. 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 I mean, no, nor, nor would I expect that though. You know, the FBI databases have gotten so good. They can tell you what color underpants someone's wearing. When you, when you, uh, going out and you say you're you're kind of pounding the pavement looking for clients mm -hmm. did a lot of those clients come because of what you did oh without question yeah i'm absolutely yeah. shameless about explaining to people that i'm a former fbi agent and uh, utilizing that to give them a sense of comfort and it's not solely it's not as cynical as maybe i make it sound this industry of being a private investigator is filled with like jokers losers and quasi con men it's not an honorable profession <laughs> at all. And so being able to tell people and give them a sense of comfort that, listen, I was an FBI special agent for 26 years. This is all I've really ever done as an adult, other than some accounting work when I, I was barely, it was barely shaving. Um, I'm a guy you can trust with your investigation. One, I'm not, you know, one, you can rely on me to get it done right, get it done under budget and get it done discreetly, which are, are three very important data points for my clients. Do you have any, uh, have you written any books or articles? No, no. Uh, you know, I've got 800 videos on social media, uh, but that's sort of my medium to tell my story. Well, where's that? What's how, if, if our listeners wanted to dwell into that, yeah. uh, what would be that website and, and speak slowly because not everybody writes very quickly. Sure. But sure. Give us, give, us a, give us your websites there. Well, my name's Tom Simon, right? And so my, my firm is Simon Investigations. And so if you went to my website of simoninvestigations.com, not a very fancy website, but it tells what I do for a living. Now, if you hop on any social media platform, uh, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, you know, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, and you type in Tom Simon or Simon Investigations, what you're gonna see and subscribe, right? Like and, like, like and follow, uh, also on YouTube. Um, what you're going to see is every morning, Monday through Friday, I produce a new 90-second 
crime story, talking about either a, a private investigative case that I worked, a FBI case that I worked, or an FBI case that someone else worked that I think there's something instructive or interesting to discuss about it. It kind of leans a little bit toward financial crimes because that's sort of my interest, but, um, but it's been a great marketing tool for me and a way to kind of educate the public, much like you're doing on your podcast. Well, you know, some of your cases that you've worked, and I, maybe even now, we're very popular, and we're actually on a series with CNBC, yeah. uh, American Greed. Yeah, I love that show. It's uh... yeah. <laughs> well, can you tell us a, a, maybe about a couple of episodes that are there? Yeah, so let me give you a little, a little background. See, I back in the um, the. the I was always trying to sell because every now and then I had fugitive cases in my world of white collar crime, right? Where somebody would, would decide they didn't want to face the music and they would decide to take off as opposed to it. So I remember reaching out to America's most wanted back in, God, I guess it'd be the early nineties or two thousands and pitching them a case on, uh, on one of my cases, a fugitive that I was looking for in the white collar crime area. And they said, you know what? We don't do financial crime cases on America's most wanted because you just can't make them come alive on television. And I always remember that because a couple of years later, CNBC launches American Greed. And wow, was that a good show taking fraud cases and making them come alive, right? You had old Mike Hammer himself, Stacey Keach right. doing the voiceover for it, right. telling the story of these great Ponzi schemes and the greed and, and the and all that. And it, it, they did such a fantastic job. It's Curtis Productions out of Chicago. Bill Curtis's company um, produced it and CNBC bought the shows and it's been on for a million seasons. And so what happened was when I got to Hawaii, I pitched them one of my cases, a guy named James Lowell, who was the Bernie Madoff of Kauai. And they came out and did that story. And it turned out really nice. And then a year later, they called me and said, what else you got? And so I pitched them another story about a, a husband-wife couple who ran a Ponzi scheme. And when he was in prison, he was running the Ponzi scheme in there, a guy named Perry Griggs. And they came out and did that story. And it was great. And then they called me back again and said, can we do another? And guys, I thought I was hot stuff. But then I realized the production companies in Chicago, they wanted to come out to Hawaii to film for a week. It didn't matter. I could have been a potted plant. And, uh, <laughs> and so, so as much as I think that I had all this great star power that kept them coming back, I think it was the bikinis and the sunshine that kept them coming back. <laughs> and they did a third episode on a, a couple named um, John and Julianne Dimitrian. Um, and uh, who be, who were uh, mortgage defrauders who became fugitives. And so those are the three episodes of American Greed that I was featured upon. Well, look, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, <laughs> but the weather up here has been a little lousy. <laughs> and I tried to talk Jim into going down to Jacksonville to do this live with you. <laughs> yeah, just sit on my couch back here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm thinking, you know, you get down there where it's a little bit of sun, no snow, no yeah. ice. You know, I'm thinking it'd be great. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll have some umbrella drinks. We'll all uh, we'll float in my pool and uh, talk about old that. times. I could do that. So consider it a standing invitation. Well, thank you for Jim, that, Jim. You have uh, thank you for that, Tom. Jim, you have anything else you want to add? No, this is interesting, and it's a world I have not ventured into much. That is white collar crime without a an accounting background, and I try to avoid that as much as I could. But I certainly knew agents very yeah. capable, very uh, much qualified. Uh, a lot of those guys like to get on the SWAT teams 
so they can go out and have some fun with felony yeah. car stops, kicking in doors on bank robbery cases. But their everyday tasks, of course, would be, you know, white collar crime, public corruption, something mm -hmm. like that. So uh, I always respected the men and women, you know, with that background and uh, and the bureau and other agencies certainly need them. So um, so but uh, just, yeah, it's, it's, it's cool that you're a, a private investigator now watching movies from the 40s and 50s. And you mentioned Mike Hammer and some of the fictitious characters out there. Uh, Magnum P.I. I could yeah. have been you if you stayed in Honolulu. I know. I know. I lived in the same neighborhood as the that Magnum P.I. house. It had really fallen into disrepair while I was there. But yeah, it's mm -hmm. uh, um, yeah, it was great. It was a great place to be. And, you know, wearing the Hawaiian shirts, uh, working cases was a real honor. Well, you know, Jim doesn't know this, but I was six credits short of accounting degree when a professor <laughs> told me this was my second degree when he told me, what are you doing? And I told him I wanted to get into the FBI knowing they had one of the accountants yeah. and he says, get your MBA. So I stopped yeah. the accounting degree. I needed a tax course and a financial government course, tax accounting. And I went over and uh, got my MBA and got into the bureau. You were this close to being in, someone, Ray. You were this close. I, I know. I know. You could have been you know, a contender. I know. <laughs> I know. When I got in and I passed under diversified, yeah. they called me and said, hey, do you want to take the accounting test? You have enough that you could take. I said, no, no, no. I didn't want to get labeled yeah. as an accountant and get, you know, because sometimes you're doing that. So when I came right out, I got right in violent crime and I was happy as a clam. Tom. Yeah. Happy as a clam. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's what's so nice about the FBI is that there's really a place for everybody. You know, like if yeah. you if you know maybe maybe cases aren't your thing and you want to be a teacher, then you go to Quantico and teach. Maybe you want maybe you're a great administrator and you're just not the kind of guy you know. And then you go be, be a supervisor. I I went 26 years without a promotion, and so I was never anybody's boss. I was never a relief supervisor. I did what I wanted to do every day. I worked cases then and now. It's all I ever wanted to do. But I loved the FBI, and I was, it was such an honor to be able to serve for for that long and kind of be, have a front seat to history. Yeah, you know, I was a sergeant at my police department, and I I it just fell out of favor being the supervisor of other people. So I found a way in the bureau to become a pro profiler. You are a supervisor. Mm -hmm. but it's kind of like a gratis for doing the specialized work yeah and i didn't actually have to supervise anyone except <laughs> myself so it was the best of both worlds boy did i have some argument with myself he struggled some with that work. Tom, tom he struggled with supervising himself let me tell you that was only me. <laughs> exactly <laughs> tom you have any closing closing comments you'd like to uh... and give us the website again yeah, so my website is simoninvestigations.com. And if anyone types in Tom Simon FBI, you're going to, uh, you know, it's easy enough to find me. And if any of your viewers or listeners just sort of need help, especially with the financial crime program, I'll give a free consultation. I spend all day talking to people. And so they can just give me a call and I'll give them advice. I find myself turning away a lot of clients because it's either something that, you know, we're not going to be able to, it doesn't make economic sense for them to do it or, um, or yeah, I just won't be able to help, but I can always give them advice and point them in the right direction, especially if they had suffered a financial loss due to fraud or know someone who did. So I just invite your listeners or viewers to just hit me up. I'm here for you. Outstanding. Well, this has been fun. Uh, we want to thank Tom Simon for joining us today and giving our audience insight on an incredible career working for the FBI as both an agent and after being an agent as a private investigator. It's been great having you as a guest, Tom. Jim? Jacksonville PI. That's going to be the next show coming out. With, uh, <laughs> That's where we're going to label this one. I agree. From your mouth, mouth to God's ears, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. So thanks again, Tom, on, on behalf of uh, Cold Red and our, our listeners and our audience and uh, everyone out there. Yeah. Check us out on all the social media sites, uh, coldredpodcast.com. Please subscribe. Push all those right buttons for us. Leave some comments behind, too, and uh, we'll do our best to answer them. So, again, uh, Ray, always good working with you. Tom, thanks for being our guest for this particular podcast. And everyone out there, we'll see you on the next episode of Cold Red.